Hey, what's going on? This is the Saturday Down South podcast presented to you by Texas Beat. I'm Connor O'Gara. Will, I want you to go back to, I don't know, like, let's go back to January 2018 and just, just pretend that someone whispered in your ear, hey, by the end of the 2023 season, LSU and Oklahoma, they're going to have the same amount of Heisman Trophy quarterbacks in the entire 14 playoff era. And then you'd say, stop whispering in my ear. That was obnoxiously long. But you would have a moment where you'd say to yourself, well, I just don't think that's possible. But don't ask that this way, brother. I would like I would like to get on that level of hopium, please. Yeah. And don't you know it, Will? It happened. Jaden Daniels, your 2023 Heisman Trophy winner. Uh, the surprise wasn't necessarily there. You're, by the way, rocking a Jaden Daniels jersey that you have yet to wear on this show do we have daniels on the back too oh Oh, yeah oh yeah this is actually a great segue this is um the first college athlete nil jersey i've ever bought it might honestly be the last um i bought this jersey before the fsu game but didn't come until the monday after so it is actually fully a lucky jersey fired up about that um it's my first lsu purple jersey ever and the first nil one and yeah it's it's so funny man because I'm, i'm glad you asked me about that i never would wear a college athlete jersey because I feel like it would be a jinx like while they're still playing. I feel like a guy – we've talked so much about being our age and having jersey rules. The worst thing you can do is get like a, you know, uh, like a random quarterback that we all thought was going to be good, Blake Barnett jersey or something, and, and just be like, okay, you know, now, now this is in my closet and he's 19 and I feel weird. But I feel like with Jaden, I was like the way this guy – I was like he already beat Alabama. He already won the West. The way he has carried himself, represented this university, like – I feel I feel great about it. And funny enough, and this is like a kind of a funny thing. Um, I don't know if a lot of LSU fans are superstitious like me, but I didn't get a Joe Burrow jersey until he was done playing. And yeah. so my Joe Burrow jersey is more or less cursed because all I've watched is just bad football until Jaden Daniels got there. Um, so I have now just completely switched onto the Jaden Daniels jersey. It's this bright, beautiful purple. And uh, yeah, it was a great purchase. I feel feel great with my two hundred plus dollars I got from the official. LSU store. <laughs> that's that's something that makes it a little bit easier to stomach. Yeah, you know, like you, you used to go to games. I remember going to that that Auburn LSU game 2019 and the amount of Joe Burrow jerseys that were there for a guy that wasn't seeing a dime off of that. And now mm-hmm. I feel a little bit different when you go to the SEC championship and you see all these jerseys. And yeah, there are probably a bunch that came from a Chinese website that may or may not have given your computer virus and has all your credit card information. You're going to have to make some interesting phone calls, but there are some that at least going into the back pockets of some of these players. And, you know, it's a, it's a good thing to see and nice to see that you're supporting the, the Heisman trophy winner, definitely an anti-jinx Jersey. I know you are a little stitious, not superstitious, but a little stitious. So I think you're, I think you're good. You just get to wear that now and and know that it it celebrates the year that was. So we will talk Mm -hmm. about that. That's the plan. The, the plan for today, by the way, um, we will not just be talking about the Heisman stuff. I have kind of a question that I want to ask about the four SEC head coaches that are already on the hot seat. And if they're just kind of screwed, <laughs> I mean, that's I, I, I often like to approach with nuance, but that's the question I find myself coming back to for different reasons with all four of those guys. So we're going to get to that. Uh, Shahan J. Araja, he's going to join us in a bit to talk about Texas in the playoff. Dave Aranda's weird few years at, at Baylor, some coaching carousel hits that, that he was a fan of, and a few other things. Early Heisman candidates for next year as well. But first, I've been waiting to to be able to say this on these airwaves 
for uh, for a while now how I voted on the Heisman Trophy and being able to, to release that fun little peel behind the onion. Thought they were going to announce that at about 8.50. Tough sell when I have my mom, her fiance, my wife watching the show basically from like 8.15 on. Like, so they're going to announce it, announce it in like two minutes, right? Like they're going to, I was like, ah, I think like 8.45, 8.50. And then they're about to, I'm thinking surely they'll do it at 8.55. I have my how I voted story that comes out at nine o'clock that it's scheduled mm-hmm. for. That's already, you know, pre-written and all that stuff. Just release at nine. And then I go in there to change it. My editor, Chris Wright, had already moved it back to 9.15. So good on him for doing that. But yeah, they did not announce until about like 9.02, I think it was. Uh, oh, uh, also parallel lives we were living. So as you guys know, I play Warcraft and I've gotten very good at that as a joke. And so our big like dungeon raid night is Saturday and I can now go to these, which is, you know, uh, crazy. Cause I was never doing that. I did zero during the season on Saturday nights. Cause I was like, I'm not doing this. I was like, okay, cool. And imagine me showing up to a world of Warcraft event, 10 minutes late, fired up the Jaden Daniels, just won the Heisman trying to explain to everyone who Jaden Daniels was, what the Heisman is, why that was a big deal. It's just so, so Heisman, he like coached at LSU. No, he actually coached at one of our rivals, but like it's a trophy. It's kind of like an MVP. You guys, can we just get started? No worries. Yeah, not, not a lot of overlap in those in those worlds. Wouldn't think so. So, all right, here's here's how I, how I voted. Um, surprise to no one. Yeah, had Jane Daniels winning the Heisman. Had him at number one. Uh, I was one of the 503 people that that had him first on their ballots. I don't really need to explain a whole lot of that because I feel like we've been doing it really the last month, two months. But I will say that those who claim he didn't win a meaningful game and he shouldn't win because of that, I would argue that's a really dumb rule because that would qualify J.J. McCarthy, but not Jaden Daniels. And I just do not for the life of me get that. I'd also argue it overlooks the Mizzou game, which look, LSU beating Mizzou is never, it's, it's never going to be the beginning of a championship DVD or anything like that. But let's go back to that game where it looked like he shattered his ribs and comes back Mm -hmm. and beats a top 10 team on the road. So, Whatever. We don't really need to dig into that a whole lot. For me, I watched Jane Daniels become the best player in college football. And if there was someone that would just sort of brush off his stats, like I, I was probably the guy that would do that because not only did I see him play poorly in that game against FSU, but at least down the stretch, he was pretty good in, for the most part in the first half. But once upon a time, well, I had Devin Leary and, Kevin, and KJ Jefferson as my one and two quarterbacks in the SEC. I had KJ one, obviously Devin Leary two. But I had both of those guys ranked ahead of Jaden Daniels. So, look, I was probably going to be someone that would hold on to that take. No, you got rid of it. You got to be able to watch these guys and see how they play and advance an opinion. Everybody's advanced an opinion on Bo Nix. I'd like to think that I eventually came around to that probably at some point like mid to late last season. And obviously he was the best version of himself this year. I, I don't know if Bo could have done anything in the Pac-12 championship that would have changed my opinion. I'll never say never, and I, I'd like to say I went into that with an open mind watching Bo Nix and Michael Penix Jr. battle it out, but I, I, I don't think that there was anything that was going to sway my vote, even though, like, yeah, I guess maybe a six-touchdown game wherein he makes three or four unbelievable highlight real plays to get Oregon in the play. Maybe, but outside of that, it's just – it probably wasn't going to happen for me personally. I was surprised at how many opinions Michael Penix Jr. changed with what he did in the Pac-12 championship. I didn't think he had a chance to win the award going into that. I thought it was down to Bo and Jaden. And mm-hmm. 
to, for it to end up being the closest vote since 2018. Uh, yep. Look, a lot of people watched that and said that that's their guy. I had him at number two. I had Michael Penix Jr. at number two. I would not have had him at number two if he didn't do what he did in the Pac-12 championship. Um, look, I've watched a lot of Penix over the years in mm -hmm. some tough moments at Indiana and all the season-ending injuries that that guy's endured. They talked about it ad nauseum. If you followed Washington, you watch every single broadcast and they talk about it. But I thought if I'm going to put a guy at number two, it's because I have no problem if he wins the award. I would have obviously preferred Jaden Daniels to win the award based on how he voted, but I, I thought you could have made a case for him. And maybe that's kind of answers my own question as to why the vote was as close as it's been since Kyler Murray edged out Tua, which was also a conference championship weekend sort of deal where some voters had probably already made up their mind. Others were probably like, no, this actually sways it drastically for me to have Kyler do what he did. But I, I think that I came back to Penix getting that second spot for me because not only did he make so many big time throws, but I thought about what was, what's Washington without him, right? Super experienced, mm -hmm. really well coached, great scheme on offense, all those things. If they have like a, a guy at quarterback and they have a Graham Mertz at quarterback, are they nine and three? Probably, pro probably about nine and three, especially with how good the back 12 was this year. I think yep. going 13-0 against the conference when everybody was kind of under the impression, like, look, it's as deep as it's been in such a long time. That's just – I'm not a quarterback wins guy per se, but I, I, I think that had to matter. And if, if you watched him, it, it takes a while to feel comfortable watching Michael Penix because of the way that the ball comes out of his hand. And you always mm -hmm. tell yourself that something wrong is happening. I've said he's like lefty Phillip Rivers. I know I'm not alone in that sentiment. But – after a while, you realize that when this guy's upright and he's got the right scheme and he's got those dudes on the outside, he is so good and so unbelievably fun to watch. He's going to be tough to game plan for in the playoff. So that wasn't my debate. I came away from Friday knowing what one and two was going to look like. It was all about that. Right. And real quick, I'm super aligned with you. And I think it's so funny. I mean, you know, I'm never like, you know, Southern exceptionalism guy, but like every time all these dudes from the West come out of the woodwork to teach us about college football snobbily, they all just end up looking so stupid. Let me ask you this question. If the media, and I'm, I'm not even being mean, it is like part of LA Pac-12 media. If those guys had just backed Michael Penix instead of Bo Nix, he probably wins the Heisman, given how close of what it was. Right, because they had to change gears so late in the race from pumping up Bo Nix and all this lack of air yards and trying to make all these stats about Bo Nix. If those graphics and that that energy was put towards Michael Penix, I think he wins the award. I think you're having two different conversations. I think okay. you're talking. There's a difference between what a team is doing to pump up somebody's Heisman case, which I thought Alice, you did a really good job of that down the stretch in the series. You know, that kid, Jaden, all the work that Cody Warsham and that team does at LSU mm -hmm. is just tremendous. There's a difference between what the bodacious signs in New York, who's financing that, who's taking control of that, how much Oregon Nike backing that has, as opposed to media members going to bat for somebody and saying, mm -hmm. this is who I think my guy is going to be. Because remember, like, that's that's how this is decided. It's not like the writers on the West coast, you know, my guy, John gold, who is, who did great work for us at, at Saturday out West this season. It's not like they're, 
they are together and saying, oh, we need to, to, to settle on finding our guy. Those are two entirely different conversations. So it, it doesn't really work like that on the back end. Let me let me say this, though, too. I do think there is a contingent of just either anti-SEC or anti-Jaden Daniels guys that were just out all year that were like, he lost three games. This is not my type of Heisman. And those guys were looking for – you're right. Like, the guys who were in their team or in their zone or pick their guy. And those guys were quieter, too, like the actual West Coast actual media members. But the people that are always, you know, commentating that were saying this guy doesn't deserve the Heisman, all of that love, the neutral kind of national media love, went to Bo Nix. And I think the entire time, we literally talked about it. I, I said it to you. Obviously, you didn't want to reveal your vote. But I thought I think Penix is an amazing player. I've been in his corner. I didn't know about four season-ending injuries. Like, I texted you. Three probably would have been a little bit surprising. Because I remember the injuries, but I didn't think it was boom, 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 boom. Like, But point being, like... I've, I've been in his camp, and I think he definitely deserved to be second. I think it deserves to be a close voting. I think that it, wins do matter with the Heisman, and it shouldn't be a runaway. Um, but, yeah, I, to me, I just feel like there were two quarterbacks, and I might have even had Travis above next. I mean, in terms of, like, what guys did with, you know, changing how important they were to their team, changing the narrative, changing the landscape of college football, what does Bo Nix want? I mean, you can point to what Jordan Travis won. You point to what Michael Penix has won. Even Daniels last year winning the SEC, beating Alabama, beating Mizzou this year. Seems like it's been a little bit better than Bo Nix. I don't know. Yeah, and, and then it gets into, all right, how much are you evaluating QB wins? And and, mm-hmm. and are you making too much of this determination be- based on what a team's overall record was? Because if you're going to say that it it doesn't as ma- matter as much for Jaden Daniels, but it does for Bo Nix and he didn't win enough meaningful games, then that's where it gets a little bit murky. So you led into my, my consideration for that third spot. Yes. I went I went back and forth for a while. And, and this is this is only the second time I voted, and in each of the first two years, I have like agonized all day Sunday about how like what I'm going to do for that third spot because I I, I think it matters. I, I think getting to New York and getting that kind of recognition, as much as the Heisman fraternity immortalizes you, and some people say, "Oh, it's a meaningless award," it's just by whatever you know, the best quarterback or the best team is. I, I think there's a little bit more to it than that, and I don't necessarily think the pageantry suggests that that's all the award has become. I I didn't have Marvin Harrison Jr. among my top six that I even thought about. Okay. And he's a great player. Again, I'll say until I'm blue in the face. I hope he ends up being a Chicago Bear. I would love nothing more than Marvin Harrison Jr. being a bear, even more than Caleb Williams being a bear. Okay. That, that that's how much I I would love to see him playing for my team on Sundays. That's a different conversation than who I thought the best player in college football was. On that Sunday, I debated between Bo Nix, Jalen Milrow, and Jordan Travis. But I'll say this. I came into the SEC championship saying that if Brock Bowers comes back and looks like that guy to lead Georgia, I would have him, not Carson Beck even, at number three. That didn't happen. I think everybody Mm kind of looked at Brock Bowers and said, you know what? That injury really kind of derailed the second half of the season. Still won the Mackey Award. Still was the best tight end in all of college football. But if we're talking about the best individual player I didn't quite think I could get there given the time that he missed and given what he was trying to play through would have been different if he had stayed healthy would have been different if he had just come back in the SEC championship and looks like the Brock Bowers that we knew and loved throughout his three-year career again best tight end in the history of college football for my money but in terms of the Heisman that kind of changed on that Saturday not necessarily seeing him play up to that that caliber so Sunday was all about Knicks, Milrow, Travis. The reason I didn't go with Milrow was because I believe this award should encompass the entire season. And I can't Mm -hmm. pretend that Milrow's shaky start didn't happen. There were still 
too many moments in the first part of the season where I thought he was a liability. As great as he was in the second half of the year, as much as we came on these Sunday pods and talked about, man, that guy is just figuring things out. The turnovers have gone by the wayside. This is somebody that is really developed in this offense. You give Tommy Reese credit for understanding Milrow's strengths and weaknesses as well. This offensive line's gotten better around him. This was still, to me, a season-long award, and that had to matter. If he was a liability for that much of the time, I can't vote on him to be the best player in college football. Would I have had any problem if somebody put him in second or third? No. Because if I considered it, then I can see the upside, and I won't try and necessarily talk you out of it. But I, if I'm putting you on that ballot, I, I'm saying I think you were in total control Darn near every time you stepped on a field this year. And Milrow just missed being that guy for me. So I debated him and I debated Jordan Travis, who if he had stayed healthy, he he probably gets my third spot. He probably does. Mm-hmm. I've long been a big Jordan Travis guy. Nothing to do with the box score. I actually didn't even look at his stats until he was out. Like I, I kind of just moot because I'm like, I, I don't really think of him in that way. And it's okay to be over. It's okay to be impressed by stats and to have a little bit more give with other guys when it comes to that. If the stats are what impress you, that's fine. If there are mm-hmm. other things that impress you, that's fine too. It's all part of the discussion of what makes a great player and what a guy is bringing to the table for you. Like again, not a quarterback wins guy, But I always find myself watching FSU saying, regardless of maybe a dumb thing he does in the first half, he's going to get the last laugh. And that's why they've been on this winning streak. I mean, like, it is such a big part of it. And I know the selection committee agrees with me on that. Like, I I just love that guy. I I love that guy. I think he meant so much to that program. And I, I couldn't, as much as I wanted to, I just couldn't justify putting him in there and punishing Bo Nix just because he didn't play his absolute best game in the Pac-12 championship. So that was kind of my thought process as it progressed throughout the weekend. It's actually shocking how, I guess, like far apart we started at the beginning of the season and how we finished like in pretty much the same breath. Cause it's like, yeah, I think, like I said, I probably, uh, yeah, I was not a Marvin Harrison guy. Like I, I can't, he won the Blitnikoff by one vote. I think at some point it just, what you do has to matter what you're, you, you gotta have, listen, you can have the wins or you can have the stats. You can't have neither. <laughs> and uh, Marvin Harrison, it feels like was about the third or fourth best receiver in college football this year. And I mean, again, if you're look at the wins, you got Rome from uh, Washington, Rome which is a little bit fun. Yep. Which, see, you got the pronunciations. That's why we just be saying the other name I can pronounce. But yeah, like, so point being, yeah, I, I don't, I mean, I get it, right? Because it's the brand name, it's the last name. Oh, it's the name on the front and the name on the back of the jersey. Um, But yeah, I think we're like completely, completely aligned here. I think those were probably pretty comfortably the most five, like impactful, best, however you want to say it. Um, the, You know, the three you mentioned, the two you left off, and then Harrison's sixth, so. <laughs> yeah. Um, look, and uh, again, I, I think that they're, there are a lot of different ways to look at it. I'm not saying my way is, is the best way. I don't think that it's fair to say if you voted exactly the way that it played out that, oh, people like that, they just they listen to the echo chamber. Buddy, I watched a lot of football this year. <laughs> I watched a whole lot of football this year. And mm-hmm. I am uh, I definitely was trying to look at this from my perspective and not necessarily 
what I think is going to be falling in line with other voters or, or anything like that. I have debated this and maybe I'm going to do this moving forward. Using that third spot to just get my guy on the ballot. <laughs> I might, I, and I'm not sitting here saying I'm going to put like James Pierce on there, you know, like a guy mm-hmm. that I really, I love Edrin Cooper this year. Am I putting Edrin Cooper as the third best player in college football? Probably not. Okay. Like now JJ Pegues though. Hear different. <laughs> different. If JJ Pegues. Community spotlight. The, uh, look, you, you got a point. If JJ Pickies gets into the end zone on one of those fourth and one, I'm just, just saying, um, he might have a case, but I don't know. I like, I, I saw some of, some of the ballots and some of the people that, that were on there where it just felt a little bit attention grabby. You're just trying to be different. And I guess I do want these guys getting attention, but I don't know. You get, you get what I'm saying. I don't want to be out there to the point of like, Hey, look at me. I, this is how well I know the game. I put this guy at third and I like, no, I mean, putting Cody Schrader third isn't like, oh, I, I think I know the game better than everybody else. Uh, and this is why I'm doing this. Uh, you want to put Cody Schrader third in your ballot? No problem. No problem whatsoever. You want to put J.J. McCarthy third in your ballot? Uh, okay, a little bit of a problem, but whatever. That's your guy. You're not putting him to win the award like that one person did. I don't know who that one person was. It's probably the same person that had Vandy winning the SEC. I'm just saying. Desmond Howard. What if it was Desmond Howard's playoff picks this year have aged so much better than his picks last year? What if Desmond Howard mm-hmm. was the one? The Desmond Howard of Blake Corum winning the Heisman. Mm-hmm. Would I bet my life against that? No, I wouldn't. Well, no, I wouldn't. There's a strong possibility that Devin that that Desmond Howard had at least over under one and a half Michigan men on Desmond Howard's ballot. Probably taking the over. Probably. Yep. Um, okay. Any other thoughts on, on the Heisman or do you want to talk about the four SEC head coaches that may or may not already be screwed? I love that, that headline. Um, yeah. And actually great pushback earlier where I was like, Oh, you know, the West there's, there's a specific way I could have expressed that, which is, um, there's a very specific writer from the athletic and you know, who I'm talking about who was like, I'm just not putting Jaden Daniels on this ballot. And it came out that front of the program, Ari Wasserman did not put Jaden Daniels on his ballot. I love Ari. Um, gotten to know him a little bit. I disagree very much with Ari's reasoning. I disagree that you can tell the story of college football without Jaden Daniels, who had the best quarterback rating in the history of the sport, 10.7 yards per play when he was touching the football, did things that I, I don't think within a 12-game sample size will be forgotten about in five years. So I'll, I'll agree to disagree, but yes, it was Ari who said that. Yeah, I, I believe he had the number I got from somewhere. I believe it was 337 people that just didn't have Daniels on there at all. I see that to me as a protest vote. That is voting for, you know, uh, uh, what's his name? Gary Johnson or something. It's like, okay, man, like if you think he's the second or third best player, I literally hear you. I get it. If your take is like, oh, this guy lost three games, just like, you know, Lamar, we've done the list ad nauseum and, and he doesn't deserve to win it because he lost three games. So that was more of my issue is that people were just like, I'm – going to so slant this vote away from Jaden Daniels when it's like, and like I said, I would hear, Hey man, if you had Marvin Harrison second or third, I would be like, you know what, man makes sense. But when you watch what Jaden Daniels did and like Marler had a great graphic on this, I was like among Heisman winners, what his stats were. It's like amazing. Um, So yeah, I think that's the thing. This is obviously a great year in college football. It's a great Heisman field. I mean, um, obviously, you know, two, three of the top four guys are not in the playoff. Um, so I think that's, that speaks to a really deep league and you're not going to have your runaway, you know, Joe Burrow, 
Cam Newton, whatever. So I think at the end of the day, like it's, it's cool to have those discussions. Like I said, if you're an appendix guy, if you're a Nick guy, I hear it, I get it. Um, but it just feels like people are, we're getting a little bit too opinion based, especially with, you know, uh, where the committee has been, where this stuff has been. But again, I will say, and this is not blowing smoke. It's like, if you watch the games, you know, that's the big thing. It's like, you know, if you come to that conclusion, you watch all the games and you go, okay, boom, that's another thing that I will credit. So I appreciate that you're sweating it out. Cause I think a lot of people who are just like, ah, one, two, three, done. <laughs> no, I like, I, I try and I, I try and have a lot of people that, that are part of that conversation. And you know what, like I, I you, if you're voting for Jaden Daniels, you have to look at it with a little bit of nuance as well. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's the easiest thing in the world to vote the 13 and O team or the, the playoff bound quarterback who's had the statistically best season. Like it's, it's easy to justify that. I'm not saying that, that it's, it takes more creativity to vote Jaden Daniels ahead of Michael Penix jr. But like, yeah, I, I still came back to that. I thought he was the best player in college football and you know, I, I don't really have, have a problem. I'm going to sleep well knowing that, that I put him at number one on the ballot and, um, if that's not your guy, um, then whatever, that's, uh, that's reality. We'll all, we'll all live our lives and everybody will come back and we'll argue about this thing next year. That's just the way that this is going to work. Oh, and one more thing, because we, we, you know, we like to, you know, get in the weeds and do kind of the, I'm saying wonky in terms of politics, people talk about policy wonks or guys that really get in the weeds. And I think we do a good job of that. But one thing I do just want to say overall, um, man, Jaden Daniels has been so freaking fun to watch. I mean, he has been so sick. And when you talked about, oh, you know, what if you switched out the quarterbacks in Washington? If even if LSU had another great quarterback this year, they're losing three or four games or four or five games. If they have an average, like not dumping on Nussmeyer, I think Nussmeyer is a fine quarterback. If they had gone with Nussmeyer, like old Stanford Steve suggested, this is a five or six win team. I mean, it is a five or six win team. I'm not kidding. This defense was that bad. And part of me, being a hater allows me to see my team objectively. And I texted you the other day, like there have been two LSU seasons in history that I've been like, this offense is actually going to be really good. It's literally 2019 and this year. And again, neither time did I see, you know, 60 touchdowns, 50 touchdowns, like that type of stuff. But I just knew the quarterbacks and I knew I saw the practice video. I saw how they were talking to the guys. I saw how the guys were bought in and to do what Jaden Daniels has done in spite of that defense, I think it's so hard to do because we've seen, great quarterbacks, you know, scream. I mean, we saw Patrick Mahomes lose his composure, you know, last night, just saying, or Sunday night saying, okay, you know, mad at the refs, mad at whoever. Jaden Daniels was never mad. He was never mad at the defensive coordinator. He was never mad at, you know, his teammates. He was never, and like, that's the thing. Everyone wanted to paint him as like selfish stats. Me first guy. He's like, no, like the fact that he was able to get up off the bench, watch his defense get cooked for like, 13 third downs in a row against Alabama and just keep going, take all these big hits, take the big hit against Mizzou and get back in, take the big hit against Alabama and keep playing. I mean, I said, I think the, I think the Heisman race is over. Penix has won it whenever that Dallas Turner hit happened. Cause I didn't know if Jaden Daniels was going to play again. Yeah. I mean, he, he took two shots this year that were so hard and questionably legal that upset me and made me think, okay, our season's over because this guy may not come back. And the fact that in a year that he'd already done enough at that point, even at the point of the Mizzou game to increase his, his draft stock, especially at the point of the Alabama game, he could have just sat out. He could have just not tried as hard, but he comes out right after that and has the Florida game, which again, needed every inch of that. Georgia State game maybe didn't need every inch of that, but that was, you know, Brian Kelly just playing in my player mode in NCAA football, who among us. And so point being like, I just think the guy was such a joy to watch. And it was literally like being bipolar. Like you would, the offense would get the ball. And like, I showed you, or I told you about the video of me and my buddies, like, you know, 
smoking a Gandalf pipe with Lord of the Rings music at half halftime of the Bama game. Like we felt so in control because of Jaden Daniels. And the fact that you, when all the offense is on the field, you're just full of joy and you have this huge smile on your face. And then the defense gets on the field and you're like, I want to strangle Matt House. <laughs> it was such a roller coaster, but he made it worth it. He made this team watchable. He made the games electric and not just sad. Because these games would have been sad if not for him. We would have been talking a little bit of hot seat talk. We've been talking about losing the locker room. We've been all this negative stuff everybody wants to say about Ryan Kelly. So, yeah, I, I think it's underrated the leadership job that he's done because plenty of Heisman quarterbacks have you know made a great roster all time but to take a legitimately bad horrible defense and and in the sec west be the top 10 team you know go wire to wire with alabama go wire to wire with Ole miss and just you know not 55 can't get you 55 on the road but i think that this was a really really special year and Jaden daniels is almost solely the focus of it yeah i had him at number three among the heisman winners of the 14 playoff era I put mm-hmm. him three, and some might say that's a little bit too much recency bias. The only guys I, I put ahead of him were, were Lamar and Burrow. I mean, I, I thought they were that good. And I, mm-hmm. I, I thought what he did this year was that special, and Lord knows we've talked about it. We'll talk about it a little bit as well with uh, with Shahanjay Raja in a bit here. Um, okay, a question that I've asked for the last week, and who knows? Maybe I'm going to be asking this for the next 11 and a half months. Are four SEC head coaches already screwed? Just a question. Let's hear it. We talked about the four SEC head coaches who will enter 2024 on the hot seat. That is Sam Pittman, Billy Napier, Clark Lee, Shane Beamer. Right? I think those guys are in a spot where you're not going to be surprised to see them on any of these lists. That's just the way that this goes. And given the seasons that they had, missing the postseason, that is par for the course when you are an SEC head coach. All of them entering either year three, year four, or year five. And I just wonder if the hay is already in the barn with their futures. Talk about trying to have a little bit more of an open-minded approach with some of these coaches and the decisions that they make about how that's going to determine their future long-term and not trying to be so definitive about when a coach is hired to say they are destined to fail, they are destined to succeed. I have a little bit of a different philosophy when it comes to these coaches, not like their ADs are already going to fire them and they know they're going to be fired, but rather their path for success is so tough to envision given what we think they are facing and given the pressure they are likely to endure. And I, I know, I know like it is, this is a one way street with the portal early on. Okay. Something that I try and remind myself all the time of like, oh, this team's got this many guys in the portal. Oh, look at Michigan State. They've got a billion guys in the portal right now. And the, a lot of those again. teams. Yeah, once again, <laughs> of course. Um, but what I try and remind myself is that for a lot of these teams, yes, they're, they're going to lose a lot. They'll also bring a lot in. But at this stage of the game, when you haven't been able to go on visits, you haven't been able to have a lot of these in-depth conversations outside of a text that may or may not be, but definitely is tampering. Like <laughs> these things are a little bit slower to develop for power five programs. And so it can feel like the sky is falling for some, it will continue to fall. And for others, you'll be like, all right, this guy has slowed down a little bit. And we've been able to figure out some of these things, but four coaches right here that we're talking about miss bowl games have already lost a lot of guys from the portal and at least one stud, like one, one guy from their team that I'm like, Oh, I thought even as recently as like two, three weeks ago, that was going to be a big part of your future. And they have one gone. 
all of them have lost their starting running backs too, which is interesting. I, hmm. Patrick Smith for Vandy, a.k.a. Cheeks, of course. Mario Anderson, South Carolina, D2 transfer. Uh, he's gone. Rocket Sanders, that news was significant. And then obviously Trevor Etienne, those two guys probably 1A, 1B in terms of running back in the portal. The Trevor Etienne news, while expected somewhat, I think that still hit pretty hard. I For Florida, I think that came and was like, oh, God, this is the tweet that we just did not want to see in these last two weeks. Outside of like a DJ Lagway decommitment tweet, that's about as much as you'll get in terms of a, a crush, a stomach-sinking feeling if you're a Florida fan. So mm-hmm. why is Trevor Etienne leaving? I've been told it's a mix of workload, tampering, money, and being on a better team. All of things that, look, I don't want to say those are all just outside of Florida's control. I guess if you're a fan and you want to sit here and say, well, he was tampered with and blah, blah, blah. Okay, yeah, maybe. Um, Look, it's also probably not great when his family is going on social media and is venting about his workload. Like both seasons that he's playing, his mom, his brother. Not good. Not good. Okay. From what I was told, Etienne and Billy... They talked about the workload. Etienne was told that he would not be the true RB1, that he was still going to share those duties with Montreal Johnson unless he improved his pass blocking. When did this happen? I don't know when this conversation was. I would have to – I want to say it was before Florida State. I would you're have talking to about back. this like, like going into next season or talking Correct. about this previous season? Going into next season. Going into next season. Oh my yes. gosh. Okay, continue. So if I, I'm saying if, because look, I'm not going to bet my life that this exact conversation went down from this side. I, I'm getting it from one side and maybe somebody else is getting it from another. Okay, so I'm, I'm willing to leave it open for a little bit of interpretation. But if Billy really did use that as his justification for not giving more work to the more talented player and saying, I'm going to give you what you want. If that's Billy's justification, it sucks. Okay? It sucks. That guy pass blocked 41 times for you, according to PFF. I don't care if he's the worst pass blocker in America, which, again, the pass blocking grades weren't very good. But losing a player of his caliber for something that he was asked to do three, four times a game, maybe at most, like six, seven times, if you're facing a deficit and you need him out there for a that is absurd. Okay, it, it, it is. I looked at the top 100 graded FBS running backs, according to PFF. And you know how many of them, Will, had 100 snaps this season as a pass blocker? How many? Three. That's it. Okay? Hmm. And even that, okay, like, you do some quick math, 12 times six. 12. Yeah, you're like, okay, so like eight snaps a game, that, that's what you're doing? You right. wouldn't be like, oh, Luther Burden, I'm getting rid of you because I don't think you're as good of a receiver when you're lined up on the outside, even though you only do that about eight times per game. Oh, Brian Thomas, I need you to be able to play in the slot a little bit more. And those eight, nine snaps that you do that per game, I just don't like what I see. Again, there are, there are probably a lot of different layers to this and layers that I, even I am not privy to. If Trevor Etienne was really being offered $30,000 a week by Kirby, or 
if he's getting like 25 from Clemson, maybe Mizzou's offering 20. Hypothetically, there might be some truth to that. But by the way, Mizzou making a legitimate push from what I've been told as well. Maybe seeing Cody Schrader actually get the rock a ton and seeing Tyler Beatty get the rock a ton and seeing Larry Roundtree get the rock a ton. Maybe that's going to appeal to somebody like, I don't know, Trevor Etienne. Maybe. Mm -hmm. But look, if you're Trevor Etienne, I I can't even I Florida fans are gonna hate this. I'm, I'm telling you right now. If if you want to hear nothing but pro Florida stuff, and if this is like just the worst thing that's ever happened to you, and if you just can't understand why this has unfolded, this is not gonna be the podcast for you. Okay. It, it's not. If you're Trevor Etienne, go get that seven-figure payday to be one of the best running backs in America, even if it's only for a year, your shelf life is short. And while some might say that this is the time for ETN to kind of be selfless, you should want to preserve your body, share the workload. I'd say, you know what? No, go to a place where you can get that workload and, or get that money and give yourself an even better chance at the NFL. Because if you're good in your first two seasons, like ETN was, and your coach is still not committed to letting you increase your role, after a five and seven year, when you want to be part of the solution and not part of the problem, I think you're well within your rights to go. And maybe that's why I only played 24 snaps in that FSU game. I don't know. I do know that Florida fans, not happy right now. Can't say I blame them. That's reality. ETN is only part of the reason why Billy Napier might be screwed. Okay. He's only part of it. If Lagway flips to A&M, Billy might be as lame duck as it gets. Like, Hey, might already be in the barn if that if that happens. But let's just say let's try and be optimistic about this. Let's say Lagway sticks. Okay, let's say that happens. Let's say Billy signs the number six class for twenty twenty four. If you're pinning your job security hopes on a freshman class, you're screwed. You just are. You, you mm-hmm. just are. And you can give me all these stats about how freshmen are playing more than ever. Fully acknowledge that. Understand that. Florida. You have to when they transfer. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's a great point. It's not like it, they're better. It's like, yeah. oh, you got to get these guys reps. Yeah. In some places, it's not a necessity. In other places, it's a bit of necessity and also wanting to keep those guys engaged, keep them on the roster. Like, I get it. Florida endured mm-hmm. a whole lot of that this year. But um, it's not great. Okay. It's not great. Instead of all of these guys that are in year three with Billy, they're. They're they're not there. And the Nick De La Torre tweet about half of those guys from his first class being in the portal, man, that sucks. It just does. And any path to Billy Napier getting a year four in Gainesville, it involves him swinging big in the portal, hitting a couple of those guys out of the park, which I'll, I'll say Billy's done, done well in the portal. He's definitely done well. I, I mean – Ricky Pearsall, Cyrus Torrance, Montreal Johnson's a good player. Like he's got in Graham Mertz was better than what I thought he was going to be. Okay. I've, I've admitted that, but mm-hmm. you're not going to be able to all of a sudden upgrade a quarterback. So you, you need Mertz to take that next step. Okay. You do. I, I think he can be, if all the pieces are around him, could that guy be part of a nine and three team? Yeah, probably. But is he going to be the guy that's going to elevate all those other areas and be able to kind of overcome some of those things. Like if you don't improve on the offensive line, if you actually don't have a multiple, you know, a, a deep versatile backfield, like if you don't have these guys on the outside, can you overcome all that? I don't think he can. And maybe he will and he'll prove me wrong. But as of right now, like I, I still look at Graham Mertz as being in, in Florida's ideal world, the bridge to DJ Lagway. That is their, their hope. 
Okay. Right. And Florida fans, you don't want a true freshman navigating a schedule that daunting. You just Correct. don't trust me when I say that you also don't want your head coach to still be undecided about whether he's going to retain himself as a play caller. That's bad. It's December 11th. What are, what are we doing here? What are, what are we doing? Like my hope, my hope is that Billy is just telling himself, I've got a couple of NFL guys that I want to bring in and you're waiting for this to play out. You've already made those contacts. I hope that what I was told about his indecisiveness in that area is not really indecisiveness. And it's just him wanting to keep things very close to the best. That is, again, I'm trying to be optimistic. I, I am not doing this exercise to say that I'm out on these coaches and they're destined to suck. I'm doing this because I'm literally trying to find a path for your coach to succeed. That is the entire purpose of this. And it is becoming so difficult to see what that looks like with Florida. And I, I think that given what he is up against in year three with that schedule, with the talent retention, all these different things, I look, I'm going to side with Florida fans that are frustrated. And if mm -hmm. anybody nationally who's just looking at this from the outside saying, well, you know what, Florida fans, Florida boosters, they're all just too impatient. I, I'm saying you're not seeing this, this guy that preached patience and has given this product so far, I'm saying you're not looking at that close enough. And I will defend Florida fans who are getting criticized for being too impatient with a new head coach. Are you just supposed to dig your heels in two or three years, like an, another two or three years after this, just so you can try and shed that narrative to give him what, what does he need? Six years? No, no way. There's absolutely no way. And I, I, I think that that's just the wrong take if if that's what you're you're saying Florida has to do if they don't see that imminent improvement the plan has to work starting now like ahora mismo okay that's what we're talking about here because so far it's been let's continue spanish basura it, it basura. really has been yeah so that's the florida side of it thoughts on that before we move on to a, a few of these other guys Listen, you have just given me a Christmas gift here, opening with Jaden Daniels, Heisman, and then transitioning straight into Billy, isn't Billy Napier screwed. I'm going to be nice. I'm only going to tell one joke. The Florida fans were telling me that Billy Napier was going to shut down Louisiana and get all the recruits. They forgot the university of part of that. I will say that the big thing with him, it's two different things, right? Um, it's number one. So like Billy Napier is a play caller. Um, not great. Um, not, I mean... Not great, um, but I actually don't exactly think that's their issue. Um, so let me let me say this. First off, and I'm only going to talk about LSU here because the defenses were similarly trash. Like, trust me, this is not some big LSU is better than you think. It is that LSU's defense is worse than Florida's, okay? What did I just say Brian Kelly did? Gave Jaden Daniels the keys, said get out there and win these games. That's what Billy Napier should have done with ETN, who is clearly the best player on this offense. To me, I love Pierce Hall, and you know how much I've talked about Pierce Hall, like – I think he's number two, but it's not one A and one B. It's two. Uh, and I think there's a pretty big gap to whoever you think third is, maybe Mertz, who knows. But point being, if you have a running back that every single play is a threat to score a touchdown, the defense is going to be looking at him the way they look at Jaden Daniels. If you can throw him a screen pass and get those blockers open in space, you're now opening things up for Graham Mertz downfield. I said this when we talked about it, you know, they were on a backup quarterback. I would rather, if I'm playing a backup quarterback, have a running back that makes the defense respect him than a running back who's going to block someone for two seconds. 
um, at the end of the day, that's what you need as a backup quarterback, as a safety release valve. That oh, you you throw a, a one foot pass to a guy and he takes it seventy yards and boom, you know you're you're golden. Um, and so point being, like that's the most shocking part of it to me, right? Is that we've gotten this guy who is like this you know offensive guru could do all this. I mean, he looks at ETN and he's not like, dude, let's just put play you at quarterback if you want, brother. What do you want? Do you want to be a receiver? Do you want to be a kick returner? Like, let's get you out there as much as you can. Pierce Hall's a kick returner. He did amazing. It's actually probably not a good idea, but it's the only position. <laughs> oh, line? What are you thinking? And so point being, like, I think that, yeah, you could talk about, like, kind of the, the adapter die thing, but I really do think the part of it is that Billy Napier coaches an offense that is supposed to have a good defense with it. His offense moves the ball three, four yards of play, right? They don't really commit turnovers or save with the ball. They they move it down the field and, you know, it won't take it to the red zone, it's any man's game, but they move it, right? And then he hired a defensive coordinator and staff that were like these young, splashy hires. And it's like, I said this at the time, I'll say it again. You need some old, angry defensive coordinator who is 60 years old to come in here and just scream at these guys for being soft. Because this team can actually work if they have a good to great defense with that exact same offense. But the problem is they have that offense and a putrid defense. And so the issues of what's up? I was going to say, hear me out, Todd Graham. Okay. Okay. Maybe not that specific older gentleman, okay. um, but even like, even when Bama went and got like Kevin Steele, someone like that, Hey, swing for the fences, go get Charlie strong. You already tried it. You know what I'm saying? Try somebody who has pride and puts the fear of God into these boys. Cause that's the issue is that the offense, I think is decently communicating, but it's, we talked about the miscues stuff on special teams and really it's just this defense gets pushed around. And that's my biggest issue with them is like, I'm, you're right. I think they should change play callers, but if they had, you know, Dinbrock and Sloan out there, is this team winning more games with those personnel and not playing ETN? Probably not. What about Bob Pelini? Like, what's he up to? Oh, my gosh. I, I had to knock you down a peg, Will. And there are people listening to this saying, Will came in a little bit hot today. He's got his Jane Daniels How? jersey on. We're feeding right into the Will narrative of, like, you know, Billy's in trouble. And like, I needed to get one of those in just to, just to get you back to earth a little bit, just to remind mm -hmm, you of mm -hmm. things that have happened in this decade. So it's, it's nothing personal. Oh, I think house is worse than Pelini. <laughs> Listen. Oh, I don't, I don't, I wouldn't go that far. I wouldn't go that far. Pelini I, didn't have uh, Harold Perkins. I, uh, I, I'm just saying, uh, I would, I would not put anybody below Pelini with how bad that defense was. Can't do it. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So Billy is one of those four coaches in, and he's in a different spot. I, I think Billy, his seat on the, the, the proverbial hot throne, let's call it that. Um, yeah. it, it's very obvious. I think that if you look at Arkansas. Wait, really quick before we do this. can you? I don't know if you're going to do this later in the segment, but can you rank these guys for me real quick? That's what we know now. Oh. Not lag way, but just. In terms of most likely to get fired or most screwed? Because yes. those are two different. Yes. Most screwed. Most screwed. Yes. I think Billy's most screwed. I think okay. Billy's the most screwed. I would put, I think I'm going in order here. I think Billy's the most screwed. I think mm -hmm. Pittman is the second most screwed. I think, now, nah, you know what? No, what? Oh, I'm taking that back. I think Clark Lee is the second most screwed. And mm -hmm. I think Pittman is the second most, or the, the third most screwed, I guess. And then Beamer would be last, fourth most screwed. Yeah. Oh, I That's screwed power rankings. Lock mm -hmm. him in. Mm -hmm. um, okay, so let's let's talk about Pittman because, and I know we we've talked a lot about his job security, and so we, I, I don't want to repeat too many of these points. And I've already kind of gone out there by saying, hey, like Hunter Juracek, he showed loyalty 
to to Pittman after what he did to bring him out of the Chad Morris era. If, if Pittman had taken over for Bielema instead, I think this is a different conversation. That loyalty looks different, but because you knew where the program was at at the end of the at the end of the 2010s decade and what it took to get him, them out, there was always going to be a little bit of grace there. So that's why he's back for year five, even though the optics couldn't have been worse in home games. Again, we talked about that ad nauseum, but the conversation about Sam Pittman getting to year six. I wouldn't bet on it simply because most SEC coaches don't get a year six. That's just, that's reality. Here's the list of SEC head coaches who started in the 21st century. So your first game you coached was in 2000 and got at least six years on the job. That list, Bobby Johnson, Derek Mason, Jimbo Fisher, Kevin Sumlin, Steve Spurrier at South Carolina, not at Florida. Dan mm-hmm. Mullen at Mississippi State, Gary Pinkle at Mizzou. And again, not that entire time in the SEC, so there's a little bit of room for interpretation on that one. Les Miles, mm-hmm. Mark Stoops, Rich Brooks, Mark Rick, Kirby Smart, Urban Meyer, Gus Malzahn, Nick Saban. And by the way, just Nick Saban at Alabama, not Nick Saban at LSU. Again, right. I gotta I gotta bring you back to earth a little bit. Well, that's what we're doing today. That's what we're doing. And you know who's not on that list? Coco. <laughs> that's a good point. And uh, not on that list, my guy Gene Chizik. So it's hard. Mm-hmm. It's really hard. That is 15 SEC head coaches who started in the 21st century and got at least six years at their school. The odds were always going to be against Sam Pittman getting to year six. And I say that as a, a fan of Sam Pittman. Ideally, we're going to have him on the show at some point in the spring because I think that guy is really interesting. I don't think there's a more likable coach in America, despite the fact that he's had some moments that have rubbed Arkansas fans the wrong way this season. I would still argue that there are a lot of coaches that when facing a four and eight season are going to say things that don't exactly make fans happy. But after seeing some of the portal losses the last two years, it feels like the odds are really against him. And I, I say that despite the fact that I think Pittman has actually done pretty well in portal evaluation, like the Landon Jackson move worked out really well. Drew Sanders was awesome for a year, mm-hmm. but it's, Duty. yeah, look, it's, it's brutal. It's starting to look really, really bad. That is why Sam Pittman swung for the fences to get Bobby Petrino. Okay. That he is feeling the heat as he should. Obviously he knows he's not fighting a PR battle right now. You're not trying. The optics couldn't have been worse this season. You're not trying to win fans back or fill the seats or whatever. You're trying to win football games. And he believed Bobby Petrino, despite all the ego factors that could go into his decision like that, that is what he felt gave his team the best chance to win. And even if it means hiring the offensive play caller that had arguably the most awkward exit in college football history, um, that's what you just got to do, okay? And And NFL history, which is hard to do to get both. It's like a reverse Pete Carroll. Um, You know know what's really funny, too? I think our brains did the exact same thing when you rake those, which is like, yeah, Pittman's like, oh, he's got Petrino. Let me scoot him back one. Because low-key, Petrino was a good coordinator for A&M. He just was on his... Four string quarterback. Anyway, when we do the coordinator draft, uh, let's let's just say you're gonna have to go high to get Petrino. Okay, <laughs> I stand by that. I absolutely mm-hmm. do. We don't know who Petrino's quarterback is gonna be. TBD on KJ, who hasn't officially entered the portal. Uh, he said, "Haven't made my decision yet." Arkansas needs to know because if he does, you better believe Arkansas is going to drop the bag to get a portal quarterback. 
they need those guys on campus ASAP or else that market will thin out in a hurry. I've already talked so much about why I'm not big on the post-spring quarterback edition, especially if you've got a coach on the hot seat. It worked out well for Coach O in 2018 with Joe Burrow. I'd say don't assume that Joe Burrow is going to happen for your team. It would be fascinating. It would be fascinating, Will. If we see mm-hmm. Walker Howard go to A&M and then Connor Wigman follows Petrino to Arkansas. I don't think, I think Wigman is locked in, but I don't know what those conversations look like with Colin Klein. I, I don't know if that's going to be part of it, if it was kind of a package deal. TBD on that, um, but, you know, just something to keep in mind. So is Sam Pittman screwed? Maybe he's not because Arkansas at least doesn't have to face Bama next year. That's good news. So I don't know, but yeah. I think even Arkansas fans are looking at this going, man, and especially with Texas coming into the SEC now, a job that I I think you have to recruit the state of Texas really well to have long-term success there and doing that now with more influence than ever in that state, I just think it's going to be difficult. So it might Mm -hmm. be a very, very narrow path to a year six for Sam Pittman, and especially knowing that buyout is going to come down and that's going to be even less than the 16 million that it would have cost to fire him. Uh, this year a little bit more approachable moving forward so yeah Pittman tough spot yeah not to like get too I will not do this for each guy but this is actually this is a way better schedule than Florida's like we've talked about how hard, how hard, how hard Florida's schedule is next year the road you know, games you got, are manageable oh, well like it's it's not like you got to go to Oklahoma State so you got to go to Stillwater you got to go Mississippi State Auburn and Mizzou I think that, that's their four road games yep yep 100 percent it's like yeah I mean I guess your hard teams would be like Texas Again, without Jaden, this this LSU team's not good. So I don't know what they're going to be next year. But this schedule is pretty doable, actually. I'm actually starting to gain. I'm getting I'm, the hopium is flowing right now. The problem is, these, like I, I I talked to John Neighbors about it a lot this off season coming into 2023. He said the schedule really sets up well for them to have have that eight and four year. And John's usually pretty realistic when it comes to those expectations. And so the schedule is supposed to help him out this year, and that did not happen. And they lost these games that you thought were going to be a lot more winnable. And instead you got blown out by two teams that if you were doing this, the, you know, the old fan win projection, you were circling Auburn, you were circling Mizzou and those games were never even close. Um, You were circling Mississippi state as well. And that game was close, but for all the wrong reasons. So unfortunately, um, anyway, yeah. Yeah. As a witness of that game on my television, which I'm going to count myself as a witness that, that, that feels like I, I can put myself in that group for watching that seven to three uh, debacle that, that unfolded. So you're, in, okay. you're uh, entitled to financial compensation for that. You should call her your chin. I, I might, I might, I'm not alone. Look, at least I didn't spend my harder money on tickets that day. That would have been a tough thing to justify. Didn't have to do that. Would definitely put that on your taxes. If that was one of, if, if you were a person in the crowd that day, mm-hmm. Clark Lee screwed. Will. Clark Lee screwed. If you've been following this, it's every day a new Vandy starter hits the portal. It's unbelievable. I was reading a story in the Tennessean about this because I wanted to get like the exact number. Mm -hmm. And they had 12 of the 22 starters for that regular season finale against Tennessee are not coming back either because of portal entry, retiring from football, running out of eligibility or declaring for the NFL draft. Now, in a nutshell, if you're telling somebody your team is only going to return 
10 of 22 starters. You're like, all right, that's fine. It's, it's whatever stuff happens. If you're saying that within a week of the season ending or like <laughs> two weeks of the season ending, and you're like, wait a minute, we were supposed to, eight of those guys were supposed to be on our team and, and they hit the portal. Like they had 17 guys in the portal already. And it's, mm-hmm. it's not good. I mean, not good. They've already got like their best defensive linemen's already committed to USC. London Humphreys is, was like looking like a, a really promising true freshman receiver. He's already on a visit to Georgia and, you know, Will Shepard, a guy who was kind of one of the most underappreciated SEC receivers. He's already in the portal. I was talking to somebody the other day about Jaden McGowan. It's like, yeah, I think he's going to like come up, like come to, to my specific team and be a special teams player. I'm like, no, Jaden McGowan's like, you're going to get that guy in the door and you're going to realize like that guy could, can start and play significant snaps for you mm-hmm. left and right. Well, they have three quarterbacks in the portal. They lost all of them. They lost wow. Swan. They lost C- like they lost seals. They lost Taylor. Like they lost all the guys that, that threw multiple passes for them this year. And there were lots of guys that threw multiple passes for them. Yeah, that's uh, that's the classic. Not to be this guy, do not follow the football that closely. I'm not going to pretend to read the tea leaves, but Clark Lee does and has always seemed to be a very intense guy, kind of like we talked about the coordinator that Florida needed. And if you're a coordinator, that's cool. If you're a head coach and you're losing and you're kind of like Mr. Intensity, seems to be like we could, we could draw the dots here because it's like really if you want to go leave and play defense for usc you're unserious about football but what's the difference you don't got to go to class you're not getting screamed at those are pretty much really two differences I don't, there. I don't know man like you might be pretty serious about football if you're if you're going if you're going to usc and looking at that as a potential avenue to the nfl it's you want to play like Xavier alexander i look i'm not i'm not saying i know the entire defensive alignment of how that depth chart is going to break down post spring yeah but I, I will say, like, yeah, there's more path to be able to do it there. And I'm I'm just wondering, with those academic requirements, I know that's kind of like a, a tongue-in-cheek thing in today's day and age in the NFL. And, oh, why is Duke basketball able to get these guys eligible? It's like, all right, well, Duke basketball doesn't hold their athletes to the same standard that Vandy football does. Okay, I think we can all mm-hmm. look at that and, and agree. But, like, I just don't know how you're going to be able to keep talent on board keep others from getting all of your guys out and then to bring enough talent in to even look like an SEC team at times. I thought this year they would look like an SEC team. I had them going five and seven this year. I had them mm-hmm. beating Ole Miss. I had them beating a team that went to a New Year's Six Bowl. Terribly wrong prediction. Terribly wrong. And to look as bad as they did in year three, I mean, was this year that much different than 2020 when they could barely feel the roster because of COVID? and it 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 felt that bad and i know we don't talk a whole lot of vandy football uh but i i just i have no faith we would love for you to not talk about this team right now yeah like if you think your team has a bad just go look at vandy right now and look at i mean they're changing joey lynch isn't the offensive play caller anymore like they're they're trying to make these changes and trying to just shuffle the deck of quarterback and it's bad it's really Mm -hmm. really bad so um yeah i just i look at that situation i was like this this is not particularly good Vandy's in a different situation than South Carolina and Shane Beamer. This is an NIL budget that I don't, I'm not going to pretend I know the exact financial breakdowns of it. I know that there are talented players that could have gone to South Carolina that they just did not have the funds to be able to get. Mm -hmm. And that is a tough thing moving forward when you see the way that our, this juice wells thing played out. And yeah, maybe there was nothing that could happen that was going to keep him there. But 
when you're losing a guy like that, that is really, really tough. And you can have mm-hmm. great individual stars, but as we saw this year with South Carolina, depth was a problem all year at way too many positions, way too many. And you are now dependent on hitting the portal and hitting a lot of home runs because you've got to replace, obviously, Rattler. you got to place Leggett, and you're trying to figure out what in the world you're going to do with a team that just has so many questions across the board and you were doing what you can to put to put duct tape on certain areas of this team. You got your quarterbacks, your former quarterbacks lining up at receiver, and you're just you're just trying to get by one week at a time. And now mm-hmm. you're looking at this going, huh? Well, if we're getting outbid for certain guys in NIL, and this isn't working out for us, and I've got to watch this guy go get more money at a program that I think is right at their level, and then he becomes an All SEC player like Ray Davis. Um, I'm just saying that's not great. That's not great. And it makes that path to success so narrow. And for all the things that we talked about with South Carolina coming off of the the regular season victories that they had and Shane Beamer talked about how important that was to be able to get support, not because season to season momentum is a thing, but because this is all about talent acquisition and because those conversations to have with boosters are a whole lot easier if you've shown hey, this is what your money can go toward. You spent money to be able to get Spencer Rattler to come to Columbia, and this is what it got you. When you can actually mm-hmm. see that kind of play out, it's different. When you're five and seven in this spot and you watch what was supposed to be your best returning player hit the portal, mm, man, I just can't help but wonder if you're screwed. And that's, that's, start, that, that's what I'm starting to feel with Beamer right now. I was uh, furiously Googling there because I had to read uh, the this message board geniuses post aloud. Did you see this? I have not seen this, no. Oh, man. So this is from a guy. I was like, okay, this might be fake. I looked at He's like been on the site for a minute. So this is from like uh, the Big Spur. It looks like a 24-7 um, UI. And I'll just read the post. Uh, title, we talked it over as a family and made a difficult decision. <laughs> Subhead, we've decided as a family to not do Christmas presents this year, but instead we will donate that money to NIL. My 12-year-old son made me so proud when he looked me in the eye and said, it's the only way we can beat drink, death. <laughs> I'm not going to lie. Seeing my six-year-old daughter with tears in her eyes made this even tougher for the wife to get on board, but it will be worth it if we can get that wide receiver from Vanderbilt. <laughs> Sign of the times, man. Sign of the times. It's just not good. It's it's mm-hmm. it's not good when 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 you know that that's the hurdle you're facing and you're not so much reliant on developing guys in the way that you used to be able to fall back on. You used to say, all right, I felt really good about this class. I think mm-hmm. like there are probably like 10, 11 of these guys that are from from this class two years ago that I just know for certain they're either going to be starting for us or they're going to be on the two deep with a chance to become starters. Right. I think that that is just, it, it's changed. And once you're a coach that knows that you're facing heat, you just can't apply that logic in the same way. A lot of the mm-hmm. things that you probably said in that opening press conference about how you want to develop, how you want to establish the culture, how you want to do this, how you want to do that, that kind of has to go by the wayside when you're like, look, I have two corners that we feel good about and we need to go splurge to get a third or else yeah. that could be the difference in winning one or two games and whether or not I'm going to stay here. That's how some of these coaches have to operate now. And that sucks. And it's, it makes it a lot trickier. And I'm not saying that, that we should stop criticizing coaches because they're paid very, very well to make right. these tough decisions. 
but it is just a different world with some of those hot seat coaches, especially at developmental power five programs where they don't just turn over four and five star guys. And it is just a difficult thing to have to navigate to keep your roster intact and also get the finances needed to go out and find your guys and find your diamonds in the rough. I don't know what the future holds for Beamer, but I can't say that I'm overly optimistic. Here's a question for you. Mm -hmm. How many of these guys will still have their same job at this time next year? I will set the over under at one. Oh man, that is tough. Cause I was going to guess that. Um, okay. I mean, you know what, you know what, of these four, the question really becomes with Vandy, like oh, what level do they just go? All right, man, this is Vandy. Like, again, like we talked about in the last pod, like, we just don't really care. Like we all, like we can't just keep bringing guys in and just resetting. You have to care. You've got the stadium reno- renovation at this point. You've said that you're going to be willing to actually spend on football and you can't right. make all of these drastic moves. And that's what they are for a place like Vandy. They are drastic moves. You can't put all that financial backing towards that and then say, ah, you know what? On second thought, maybe, maybe this wasn't the best idea. Maybe we're just going to use that as a baseball practice facility. <laughs> we're just going to say that football is not going to happen for you. Set up some bowling lanes in the back. <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm with you. It's just like, but my thing is like, you know, I'm not, I'm okay. All I'm saying with that is Clark Lee went above and beyond expectations in year one, right? I mean, we know that. Year two, a little bit below expectations, but again, what are expectations? That's kind of my point is no, like- No, 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 what, no, no. Okay. Year, two, year two was above and beyond expectations. Year, mm-hmm. year one was not. Year, year, oh, this is your, I've deleted a year from my brain. I'm yes, sorry. You're COVID. doing the- I blame COVID. You know what you're doing? You're doing the year, you gave him a year zero. That's, that's what yep. you did. And that's, that's exactly what, what these coaches look. Sam Pittman got a year zero at Arkansas, according to Hunter yep. Urochek. Clark Lee probably got a year zero at Vandy after what he, he inherited. I'm not disagreeing with that. I'm saying, in terms of the actual years that we go by, he yeah. just finished year three. He's going into year four. Thank you for that. And also, you have. You've turned my point into a good point. Thank yeah. you. Which is that let's just delete that one and pretend this is year two. I think that I mean he got an extension after the year he beat Florida, right? He got an extension at SEC Media Days. That when I saw those terms from Pete Thamel, I thought to myself, twenty twenty nine is a long time. That's a really mm-hmm. long time that that deal was extended. But at, at the same time, can you get off of that contract if it's only you know base pay of like three and a half, four million bucks? And it's a private institution. So there's probably a lot of things that you could do on the back end to get out of it. Yeah. It's not great when your athletic director, Candace Story Lee, is talking about in the middle of November, he is our coach until I say otherwise. That's mm-hmm. not ideal. I can't say that a vote of confidence for a coach that's just trying to win an SEC game this year in year three is feeling great about his spot despite that yeah. extension. I, I wouldn't say that extension means a whole lot of anything it just felt more like a momentum grab than anything else fair i guess uh, to to put a bow and all that i feel like you gotta it just it's like what's what's the what's the line of demarcation here because it's like okay you know new sec all this different stuff so all i was going with that was like are you gonna build the stadium and pay a buyout and pay a new coach like and then that coach well you can't let them struggle for two years because then you just fired clark lee who like most people would say is at least a good defensive coordinator. Maybe he's Manny Diaz, um, but like at least he has a skill that you can say this guy is a good coach. He's not 
not to dump on Sam Pittman, but he's not like a position coach. You know what I'm saying? It's like this guy has been successful. So maybe if we get some guys in here, but the other side of that is, and the, 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 the kind of third rail to this is like, there might be a little bit of that Dan Mullen, just like everyone quitting on you situation going on. Because if that many people are leaving, then it's like, well, it doesn't matter if this is Vandy and how much it costs and X, Y, and Z. Like if we can't feel the team, if we can't get recruits in the building, if we can't, if the fan base is starting to also kind of turn on you, then it might just be the opposite of that, where it's like, dang, even if you do win a couple of games, but dudes don't want to be here, we you got to have you know a coach that can get guys to stay, which he's not done. And it's a hard job. I'm not saying it's an easy job. I mean, it's, I would always wonder like what would happen if you took some of the best coaches, like if you just took Kirby Smart and were like, go to Vanderbilt, how well he would do. Probably – you know, probably eight wins, seven wins, right? God, but, um, you'd have to cheat so hard. And not even like, so no, no, I mean, like, not even the, the NIL part of it where like cheating is legal, blah, blah. I mean, like, above and beyond cheating. Like, I'm going to get some crooked, shady characters involved to finance oh, yeah. the players that we need to come here, or else there's no way this is happening like above the table. There's just, even in today's day and age, he would still have to cheat really, really hard. It's like call the Saudis, get your little live golf gold in Vanderbilt. Yeah, no, I mean, I don't, I don't know, man. Like it's, it's just, it's so hard. Cause like I said, I could see both sides cause I couldn't see the side where it's Vandy and it's like, what do you, what do you want them to do? It's not worth paying a buyout. Let's just let them live for another year, be a lame duck and then go from there and, and take the next year to look for a coach maybe. Or it's like, okay, boom. Yeah. You've lost the locker room. This is pointless. We can't get, get guys in the door. So that one could go either way actually, but I'm, I think to answer your question in lots of words, I'm going to go two and two. I think two guys keep their jobs. I'm just not exactly sure which two. I think the interesting question is, could Kirby Smart go seven and five at Vandy if he had a bounty that he was able to enforce? And you know what? Mm -hmm. Just the NCAA said, ah, you know what? It's Vandy. They, they, they need something. If there's a program at the power five level, power four, we're going to be calling it soon. That's allowed to have a bounty. Let's, let's just let it slide with Vandy. They're not doing any harm. They're just trying to get to the Sun Bowl, all right? Like, let's 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 let this slide. It, it's gonna be mm -hmm. okay, everyone. Uh, seven and five. That, that'd be the mark. But yeah, two and That's two. That's who Florida needs. Greg Williams. Anyway, <laughs> hmm. I'm surprised it took you that long to come up with that take. Let's yeah, just see. get him as a, as a consultant. Just be like, hey, hit some guys. Just hit them. Well, some good might show up in your bank account. Anyway, <laughs> if, if Bo Pelini is unavailable, yes, Greg Williams. Agree. All right, let's kick it to Shayan J. Raja. Great stuff with him talking about the coaching carousel, Texas's rise to the playoff, some Dave Aranda stuff, and a little bit of the way too early Heisman talk for next year. So here's Shahan. I'm not excited to be joined by a very special guest. It is CBS Sports's Shahan J. Raja. Uh, Shahan, let's 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 get to it. Let's let's start with um, Saturday night. A lot of stuff that I want to talk about, but. The topic of Jaden Daniels as a Heisman Trophy winner for a lot of people did not sit well. And maybe I just had my blinders on and I thought a lot of people were, had accepted this after the way the Pac-12 championship played out. Do you think after seeing the voter breakdown that the voters got the Heisman Trophy right or was there something that you were frustrated with? Well, let me put it like this, okay? I think that Jaden Daniels was the right winner. I think that the ultimate answer was right. I didn't have a huge issue with the vote breakdown. I think what was interesting to me was sort of the narrative around it, where it was like, oh, well, after Bonix lost, the race is over. There should be no conversation. And, you know, I, I know that obviously numbers are very important in college football, and there's something to definitely take into account. 
but I think that to me, what was frustrating about it is it felt like a lot of box score watching for Michael Penix, right? It, it was a lot of like people not actually paying attention to what was going on during some of his games, not paying attention to some of the game winning drives that he had, not paying attention to some of the big moments. I, I think that also, I mean, he came out so hot statistically the first four or five weeks of the year. And so people were like, oh, he's not putting up 400 yards and five touchdowns every week. He must suck now. And, you know, again, his completion percentage went down in November. Again, I, I think he cost himself the Heisman in some ways during that stretch. but. Like, I just think that people also need to understand how important he is to that team, that he is far and away the reason that they're 13-0, and the reason that they're Pac-12 champions. And look, I mean, this sort of gets philosophically to what the Heisman is, right? I mean, because, you know, there, there's obviously cases like Lamar Jackson. There's cases like Jaden Daniels. There's cases like, I mean, my alma mater, Robert Griffin, right? I mean, you want to open the door to, to stories like that. But I do think that we went so far the other direction of like who even cares about what happens during the games, what the results are. I I mean, because I think I go back to one like 2013 where Andre Williams at Boston College rushes for 2,100 yards. No one says that he should have won the Heisman over Jameis Winston when Jameis Winston, the thing that he had was that. He had good numbers, very good numbers, but he also led game-winning drives. He also was, you know, a hugely impactful player for the best team in the country. And also, by the way, once he left that uh, that franchise or program or whatever, like it, it took a huge step back, right? I, I think that it's going to be like that with Michael Penix. I think, you know, one guy who you had low on your list of, of rankings was Marcus Mariota. Look what happened after he left, right? And so numbers are one important part of this, but... I do think that we went so far the other direction uh, of like, well, you know, the results don't necessarily have to matter. And I I don't want, again, we don't need to spend the whole podcast talking about this, but um, it's just hard for me also because LSU was a preseason top five team. And obviously they did not live up to that for reasons that were not Jaden Daniels fault, but especially with the numbers cases like a Lamar Jackson, like a Robert Griffin, I just also valued the idea of taking a program to a level that it's never been with those numbers, even if it's not national contention. I mean, again, uh, Robert Griffin, they won 10 games for the first time in 20 years, right? Like Lamar Jackson, they won 11 games. You know, so, so for him to have led his team to like less success than recent memory, that's something that I feel like kind of got lost in the conversation a little bit because of the numbers. And so, again, I think he's the right decision. I think that overall it was a little bit of a weak Heisman year. And so for me, he's just not like the total complete case that maybe some of these other guys were. It wasn't. And the the losses were always going to impact that. I mean, we're talking about the best player in the entire sport. We criticize it almost no matter what. Probably with the exception of Burrow 2019, it is so rare that we can all kind of come to this agreement and say, you know what, there's really not a whole lot where you can pick apart that guy's resume. Because I I think in a given year, even 2021 Bryce Young, who followed the prototypical Heisman arc, and it was obvious after what he did to Georgia in that SEC championship that he was going to win the award. There were still other places where you're like, well, did you watch the Iron Bowl? Did you see what happened here? Like, There are always places where you can pick apart these guys. And Jaden's case was a little bit more of the philosophical 
change in that we have looked at this differently over the course of the last 10 years. And because of the access that we have to this, these guys, it was going to be a little bit different. I'm interested how that impacts next year, because I think if we're looking at favorites and that's what everybody has always done, you know, two days after the Heisman, as we're sitting here talking, we, we, we turn the page to guys that can be competing for national championship and big time quarterbacks coming back. And the four obvious ones that are going to come to mind are Jalen Milrow, Carson Beck, Quinn Ewers, if those guys are back, and then Dylan Gabriel, who we know is back, who is off to Oregon, who would be your guy in that group? Or maybe it's somebody not in that group if I made you pick one Heisman candidate to bet on today. So I'll pick one from that group and one not from that group. So one from that group, I think Jalen Milrow is just potentially an obvious case, right? Because he improved so much over the course of the season. Some people got him into their top threes. Of course, I wouldn't have had him that high, but I think he would have probably been in my top five. Uh, you look at the impact that he had. I mean, obviously the the injury that Jaden Daniels suffered against Alabama plays in. And, and also, by the way, that Alabama is a better team overall than LSU. But, but like Jalen Milrow was keeping pace, absolutely, with Jaden Daniels in that game, even before the injury. And so I think that we see a ceiling right now that is impressive. Uh, he needs to refine himself as a passer. There's no doubt about that. But, you know, I I remember uh, talking to some friends early in the year and they're like, oh my gosh, this Jalen Miro kid sucks. I'm like, just, just wait, just watch, right? Like Jalen Hurts early in his career at Alabama was not a finished product. And I think that by the end of uh, of uh, Jalen Milrow's first year, he's already been better. Now he's a redshirt freshman or sophomore, like he's a little older, but like he's already, I think, at a better place than Jalen Hurts was sort of a year and a half into his career as a, as a pastor as well, right? And so there's a lot to like there. I think the other piece too, and actually let me mention my second guy, and this is a little bit, uh, some pieces have to go uh, a certain way for this to happen. If Cameron Ward ends up at Ohio State, I think that he is going to have an outstanding chance. And the thing I'll say with both of these players is, again, narrative matters with this award. I do think that that is the case. And if you have a player, both in Jalen Milrow and in Cam Ward in this hypothetical, and, and maybe it's not Ohio State, maybe it's somewhere, maybe it's USC, who knows? But if you have a player come in and the the program changes because of their introduction and their improvement, I think that that is a natural case. If Ohio State adds Cam Ward and then wins the game next year and goes 13-0, and that is like a no-brainer type of case. Now, it's not a lock that he'll win, but I think it makes it a lock that he'll be a finalist as long as his numbers are pretty good. So that would be my off-board guy. He's still in the transfer portal. He, he might end up nowhere relevant. Like, we have no idea at this point. But uh, especially if he ends up at Ohio State uh, after the season that Kyle McCord had for them, where they disappointed, obviously, I think that he has a very easy case to make. I, I agree with that. I'm actually finding myself disappointed that you went on the record with that before I did. That's a good one. I really <laughs> like the Cam Ward Ohio State thing. Uh, Texas checks basically every box for a national champ. And, you know, if you if you look at it and, and you can kind of move past what we criticize them for, some of the stuff midseason, and you can just look at, all right, well, it's going to be different when you have a month to prepare for these games. Like this team has top six talent, superstar quarterback. You've got the all-important first-round guys at, at receiver on the outside, which you need that if you look at the history of national champs. And there are very few exceptions to that in the playoff era. But they can beat you in a variety of ways. And even though Sark isn't this national championship-winning head coach, I think what he did as a schemer 2020 with Bama that postseason 
was second to none. And it was unbelievable to watch the things he was able to do, especially with Devontae Smith and the the matchups they were able to get him in. But if Texas isn't going to win a national championship, what do you think the downfall is? So there's a couple things. Um, I do think that there are moments where Steve Sarkeesian gets a little too cute with it, where he tries to make things happen, where he calls something. Like, I, I'll, I'll take you back to the Big 12 title game. I think that Steve Sarkeesian called an incredibly simple game. He just said, let's get the ball to the outside. Let's let our receivers beat their cornerbacks to the edge. And a lot of their damage, like, you know, the, 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 uh, the conversation was, oh my gosh, Quinn Ewers put up a career passing day. Well, most of those yards were after the catch, right? Like they, they made the game easy for themselves. I think that there's a chance that especially going against some really good teams like Washington, like Alabama again, potentially, that he tries to like 3D chess himself and tries to drop some crazy stuff at, that, that Quinn Ewers, who is a good player, but I think is still a growing player, might not be able to execute at the level that he wants. And so I, I do think that trying to get too fancy in the passing game could potentially be a downfall for this team. We saw this uh, during the Bijan Robinson era to some extent. We saw this early in the year for Texas where they would like they just abandoned the running game, even when it was working because they were trying to draw things up and it cost them at times. I think it cost them a little bit against Oklahoma this year. Uh, it cost them when you look at that game against Wyoming, that was 10, 10 heading into the fourth quarter. Like, I think that that is something that they need to be really cognizant of offensively is just take what's there. Uh, you know, the comparison that I made is I think that Steve Sarkeesian, especially early in his tenure, was very much an NFL coach. He's like, let me get these perfect matchups and like try to like drop this perfect play. But sometimes in college football, it's just, hey, Devontae Smith is open. Throw him the ball. You know, sometimes it's that easy. Like he, he's got tough Borland on him. Embarrass him. Right. And so I think that uh, that's going to be one piece of it. The other thing is especially against this Washington team. This is a great matchup. I'm so excited for this Texas-Washington mm -hmm. matchup. They are incredibly good in the front seven. Like, they are their run defense is maybe the best in the country, led by Tavondre Sweat on the defensive line. Their pass defense is pretty good. It, it's not as elite. They've got some pass rushers. They don't have a ton of them the way that they do run stuffers. Uh, and so I think that the other piece of this is, is going to be, does Washington especially get behind them? You know, does Romo Dunze get behind the defense? Does he beat a one-on-one -on -one or does he beat bracket coverage against some really good defensive backs that are not as good as Tavondre Sweat and Byron Murphy up front? So those would be the two pieces that I would imagine. Now, I will say, uh, I mentioned both of those pieces I don't think Michigan can take advantage of those two things. I think it would have to be Alabama or it would have to be Washington to do it. If you get Texas-Michigan in a national title game, I, I absolutely am taking Texas in that game. But this is the first playoff in a long time, maybe since 2014, where I feel like all four teams can win. And, and I think Texas is absolutely one of those teams. We got ahead of, of it in the preseason, the conversation with Texas. We said on the show, the only way for me to say Texas is back is if Texas can make it to a national championship game. If Texas gets blown out by Washington, I'd say as great as this season was for Texas to get back in the national spotlight, you can kind of take a step back and be like, all right, well, what was different with 
this this Texas season compared to a Lincoln Riley Oklahoma season. I mean, it would be really similar and how it would be remembered. Unless, of course, this is just the beginning for Texas and they go on this run and they're there every single year, at least getting to the final four in a 12-team playoff. But you live in Texas. You, you've seen the highs and lows over the years. You understand this conversation. You've had to deal with more people talking about it than, than I have, you know, in, in covering the SEC. The Texas is back conversation how do you feel about that with the playoff berth locked in? Are we are we there or, or, is, or is this something that can still happen and should still be reserved for how Texas performs in the playoff? Well, you mentioned Lincoln Riley and you mentioned Oklahoma. And the funny thing about it is that the Lincoln Riley era at Oklahoma legitimately would be the second or third greatest run in the history of Texas football. Like it would. True. It, I, because... I, you know, I've kind of looked back at this, right? And especially because because Daryl K. Royal is the all-time great coach of Texas. The stadium's named after him. He won three national titles, the last of which was 1970. Uh, since then, right, they've won conference championships. They've had top 10 finishes. But they haven't really consistently competed for titles outside of that five-year run under Mac Brown. And so, for me, what Texas being back means is competing for conference championships well into November. It's having a chance to win them at the end. It's having a chance to put yourself on the national stage. And so for me, this is very much Texas being quote unquote back. This very much is that. Now, again, this would be, if they were to win the national championship this year, this would be the third era in their history of winning a national title. It's Which actually is a little low compared to other Blue Bloods. I mean, you look at Oklahoma, they have five or six different eras. They have four or so different coaches who have won titles. Alabama, you know, you have Gene Stallings kind of has his year there in addition to the save and, and Bear Bryant runs. Like Texas hasn't been out of the Blue Bloods, the team that's competed legitimately for national championships as consistently. They've won a ton of games. That, you know, they've basically been a nine and three team every year throughout their history, which is hugely impressive. But, uh, you know, when you talk about actually competing for the conference, when you talk about competing for national championships, I mean, the Big 12 was formed in 1996. This was only Texas' fourth Big 12 championship over that entire period, including the entire Mac Brown era, which is a, an a, astonishing era. Oklahoma has 14 of these things, right? So it's it's been dominant. So when you talk about Texas being back to historical norms, when you talk about them being back to historic competitiveness, I think winning a conference and having a chance to have a top five finish, that is a great season. That is back to me. And now everything on top of it is gravy. I think that's fair. I, I do. And I'm probably holding them to a little bit of a higher standard just because I'm like, all right, well, what if they go back to, you know, seven and five next year? Like was, was, did we, you know, prematurely say that they were back, but obviously when you get on this stage and you do big things, it, it changes how we talk about you. The Dave Aranda Baylor conversation is weird. It's really weird. I, I argued after the sugar bowl went against Ole Miss, even though Matt Corral goes down early, they were dominating Matt Corral. I think they still win that game probably even if Matt Corral's healthy. But I, I argued after that, I think Dave Aranda is a top 10 coach in the sport, and I wanted to buy even more stock in him. In the two years since then, two losing seasons, this one 3-9 overall, 0-5 against the state of Texas, which I think is really significant, including the very bizarre season-opening loss to Texas State. TJ Finley led Texas State. People forget that. Aranda, he's kind of following the Sam Pittman arc in a weird way of like, 
the the year two that just kind of blows you out of the water and then you know the first time head coach by the end of year four you're like this guy's gonna get a year five and it's just strange because you don't anticipate that but what do you think is the biggest reason for the struggles that that aranda has had sustaining that success yeah, I think that the Sam Pittman comparison is one that makes a lot of sense. Uh, now, I, I do think that Aranda, one, is I think at a place where you can maybe have a little more success. And two, I, I believe in him a little bit more, uh, I think, than Sam Pittman right now. But, you know, when you look at their struggles, uh, there's a couple of things. One, I mean, this is this is a consistent thing that I think everybody is kind of going through right now. But those COVID recruiting periods... Like I think that that really screwed the program in a lot of ways. And obviously in 2020, 2021, I mean, 2020 was his transition class, let's remember. So he didn't really put it together. Uh, 2021, I think that you're kind of behind the eight ball because you're still trying to figure things out. So when you look at their roster right now, and this is definitely a pitch that they'll try to make to you too, but their best players are freshmen and redshirt freshmen. Right. Yeah. So that they are, they have just been a really young team and they, and that's a big part of why they decided to bring him back. Cause they were like, well, we feel like maybe this was just like a once in a generation type of weirdness of, well, maybe you're not bad at your jobs. Maybe like your job was just really hard during this time period and you weren't prepared for how hard it was going to be. But. I think so. That's a big part of it. Their their upperclassmen leadership was not very good. Uh, when you look at that 2021 team, a lot of those players, uh, the vast majority, were guys recruited and developed by Matt Rule. They were guys who uh, multiple players who are now starting in the NFL, including Jalen Petrie for the Texans and Terrell Bernard at linebacker for for the Buffalo Bills. Really good players, and I don't think that they found a way to replicate that sort of upperclassmen leadership and. Dave Aranda, I mean, he's one of the most fascinating people just to talk to. He is he is so interesting. I think he has this ideal vision of what a perfect team looks like. And I think sometimes he's trying to reach that level without making compensation for not reaching that level. So like an elite team has player-led leadership. It, it, it's uh, upperclassmen. It's all this sort of stuff. And when you don't have that, I, I think he struggled to adjust to that. And at times, I think he struggled too much. I think that he should probably be held accountable for that a little bit more. But I do think that when you look at the state of the program right now, right there, they retained a lot of players. They they are actually out of the 14 Big 12 teams, they're 13th in players leaving for the portal. Like nobody's left really uh, at this point. So I think that that's probably an encouraging sign. And I think the other thing too is that, you know, it, it felt like things were starting to get stale offensively. Like what they did in 2021 made a lot of sense. Now they're going back to a, a more spread tempo offense led by Jake Spavadol. So it's a lot of things. I mean, and I, again, we don't have time for a whole podcast on, on just what's going on over there. But if I kind of had to narrow it down to things, I think that it was poor senior leadership. I think that it's struggles to identify and develop during that 20 and 21 cycle. And I think that it's sort of a staff complacency on offense that ultimately uh, I think they decided to move on from. So they've been really aggressive trying to address all of those things. We'll kind of see whether it matters in 2024 because they have to figure things out quick. Could be a team making a move next year. A lot of teams made moves uh, at the Power 5 level. Who is your favorite hire of this cycle? And it doesn't have to be a head coach. can be an assistant because I think if I was trying to pick mine, I, I would go with Mike Elko going up to Kansas State and getting Colin Klein to run his offense. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll Again, I'll go one head coach and I'll go one assistant coach. So 
I love I love uh, USC bringing in Deanton Lynn to run their defense, and along with that, uh, bring in Matt Entz as well. Those are two guys who I think just understand what you need physically from a football program. So much of what Lincoln Riley did, even in his late years at Oklahoma, was soft defensively. You see the first two years at USC, it was just soft. To bring in Matt Ensign and Lynn to, to kind of revamp that, that is a big-time move. That That is him telling us, I recognize that what we've been doing is not good enough, and I'm going to get some guys who fix. Now, you have to execute, too. You have to find the talent too. You have to develop as well, which I think is something that they've struggled with. But I, I do think that both of those are really nice. When you talk about head coach, this has been such an interesting cycle because I just feel like everybody has like kind of just done some smart stuff. Like I, I don't feel like, I, I feel like very few teams have done something dumb, I guess. <laughs> but w- when I look at it, I mean, Tulane getting John Sumrall from Troy, that is insane. Now, obviously, Tulane has been a consistent New Year's Six contender the past couple of years. Uh, They've got money. Uh, They they are in the AAC, which some people, you know, I mean, again, AAC symbol is pretty close these days. But to go out there and make a power move and nab the best coach left sitting in the group of five, I mean, holy crap, That that is unbelievable to do that. He's going to bring in a big, tough physical culture. Frankly, I, I feel like John Summerall maybe should already be an SEC coach. <laughs> like, if Mark Stoops did ultimately get hired by Texas A&M, he would have been the Kentucky coach right yep. now. I think he could uh, very easily be the Mississippi State coach. I think next year he very easily could be the Florida coach. Or mm. you know, I, I don't think the, I don't know whether South Carolina is going to open, but that would be a great fit for him, right? Like to, for them to go and get him uh, at this moment. I mean, that is that is unbelievable stuff. And again, when you talk about uh, when you talk right now about the Group of Five, they're about to have a playoff spot open to them. Tulane just made a move that I think cements himself as a college football playoff contender. It's crazy to think about what he's done at Troy to be 23 and four and to be a guy that, in my opinion, absolutely should have been in those conversations. And I probably admittedly looking back on some of the people I was including as a candidate, I should have had him in there. And I even overlooked some of that because so much of this for me in looking at what his future is, is, oh, well, he's going to be the coach and waiting if and when Mark Stoops takes that big time job and it almost happened and he would have, in my opinion, been, been that guy, but you're right. I mean, he could be the coach in waiting there if that does happen, because it does feel like Stoops is kind of chomping at the bit to be able to make something happen um, at, at a bigger job. What's your confidence level in Jeff Levy working out at Mississippi state? That's a great question. Uh, I I mean, well, I'll start. I, I think that John Summerall would have probably been a, a better fit there, I think, than Jeff Levy. So it's interesting, right? There's a couple of factors to this. One, you always want the opposite of your ex, right? And uh, they, they tried to hire a, a defensive coach and it went horribly. And Zach Arnett's gone. I think that Jeff Levy kind of gets them back to that high-powered offense type thing. I am very curious at his ability to build a program around him. I, I mean, this is somebody who hasn't been a full-time sole play caller uh, for very long in his career, right? I mean, he went to Oklahoma so he can have full control of the offense. It went okay. It wasn't awesome, right? Like it, the second year, especially, we heard a lot of complaints from Oklahoma fans about his offense. 
I, I think that the other piece that I wonder about is you look around the country right now at people running that old Baylor Bryle system. It, it wasn't awesome this year, right? Oklahoma had mm. their issues this year offensively. TCU really, really struggled. Uh, you look at Tennessee, they took a huge step back after they lost all their great receivers. I know I'm a, oh, Dino Babers at Syracuse totally fell apart, right? Like this is a system that in a lot of ways has been figured out. And so the question is, can Jeff Levy with sole control of a program kind of revamp some of these things? Actually, if you want to throw Auburn into there, uh, Phil Montgomery as their offensive coordinator, right? It, it wasn't very good. So can he continue to evolve this system in an SEC that I think uh, has figured out how to, to cover that kind of offense? And I think the other thing, too, is going to be, you know, how does he do from a staffing and administration perspective? Now, uh, he has a huge uh, advantage, right? I mean, Mississippi State's athletic director, uh, Zach Selman, right, I think is his name, uh, came from Oklahoma. And Oklahoma is as well run an athletic department as there is in college athletics. Uh, so I know that he's going to have some help. A lot of people think that Zach Selman is going to be the next Oklahoma athletic director whenever Joe Castiglione retires. Uh, and so he'll have help from that perspective. But I, I'm just very curious to see what happens this offseason, what he's able to do from a talent retention perspective. I think for me, there's always going to be a little piece of who was he hired because he's coaching Mississippi and in the SEC. And is that like the main reason that he was hired? And he had success with Lane Kiffin, of course. But this is a big jump, of course, going to Mississippi State and being an SEC head coach. I think it's a swing worth taking, but there's a lot of things that have to go right for this to make a lot of sense. It's the most TBD hire of the cycle, I, I think. And it, it like I, I don't feel all in either way on it because I, I when I say TBD, I think so many of these moves that he's going to make moving forward are going to determine whether or not he succeeds or fails. Which you could say, oh, what about you know, you could say that about a lot of different coaches, but when the track record is what it is and he's been hired for a job because of his offensive acumen, I think there are a lot of other things that are going to determine whether or not Mississippi State kind of gets back to their bread and butter in finding that role in the SEC. Why doesn't Jamie Chadwell have a power five head coaching job yet? So that's a great question. And I think that that's kind of the opposite of the Levy question, which is he is a Southerner who has never coached in the SEC. I nope. think that if Jamie Chadwell had spent two years as receivers coach under uh, Steve Spurrier at South Carolina, let's say, I think he's already an SEC coach. I think that, in the SEC, there is a fear that you don't understand it unless you've lived it. And I think there's some truth to it, right? I think that there's an understanding that comes with being inside one of those programs. But it, it is kind of crazy, right? It, I mean, Jamie Chadwell is as successful a coach as we've had in college football over the last four years. Four but, years like, I mean, yeah. a long period of time. He goes to Liberty, by the way, follows an SEC coach there immediately makes it better than it ever was under that SEC coach. And, you know, I, I'm curious, right? I do think that eventually down the line, he's going to get his shot. He has the ability now to be selective is part of it as well. I mean, the funny thing about it is that uh, I think that Jeff Levy signed a four and a half million dollar contract with Mississippi State. Well, Jamie Chadwell gets paid four million dollars to go to Conference USA. Like it is, it is serious money. So he doesn't have to leave for just anything. But it is odd. I, I do think that it's wrong. I think that it probably was a smart move on his part to get out of Coastal and prove that he can do it somewhere else as well. But 
I, I agree. He should already be, I think, a sitting power five head coach. I would expect, again, SEC is going to be interesting because he doesn't have necessarily the experience, but I would not be surprised at all to see him get an ACC job, a Big 12 job in the very near future because all that guy does is win. And the other part of this too that I will mention is look at some of the hottest coaches in college football right now. Look at a Lance Leipold, right? He, mm. he did not coach in the major conferences consistently before he landed at Kansas, right? He, he went from Wisconsin Whitewater to Buffalo to Kansas, won everywhere. Eventually, sometimes we just have to take a step back and say, if you know how to coach football, you know how to coach football. Couldn't agree more. West Virginia is the one that I have circled for, for uh, Chadwell. It's, if it's that one, were to, it's one to keep an eye on. One to, although, where's Jimbo going to land then? Good point. Oh, God, that's a really good point. I, I, I'm just going to keep throwing Jimbo into the into the mix for one of these jobs. Michigan State didn't make sense, but West Virginia, man, you know, Brown falters next year. That would make a lot of sense. All right, last one for you. Since you came on this show last year and picked TCU to beat Georgia, uh, look, I'm, we all have our bad takes. We all have our bad takes. I, Lord knows I have plenty of them. But TCU is 3-8 and eight against Power 5 competition, including that Georgia game. Um, as a Baylor grad, did you intentionally curse Sonny Dykes? <laughs> so here's the thing right? i picked tc to beat michigan and i felt pretty confident in that one and it came true obviously and a lot of the stuff that i thought uh they were going to do well with happened i actually look back at that michigan versus purdue big 10 title game last year and i'm like purdue kind of moved the ball at will they were kind of able to get behind that michigan defense and i kind of feel like tc can do all this and also finish drives especially having a dual threat quarterback in max duggan and that's what happened uh the georgia one was more just like well i was right once i might as well ride with it <laughs> i might as well see what happens like i don't know like what what's the worst that can happen and the worst thing happened they lost 65 to 7 <laughs> so uh no i did not i did not purposely try to curse tcu i picked them uh in other games that i thought that they would win that was a that was more of a let's call it like an f it we ball sort of pick uh because again when when tcu makes it to the national title game after you pick them to go seven and five in the preseason it's like i don't know man why not everybody expects georgia to win everybody knew georgia was probably gonna win why not uh there's nothing wrong with that you know what at that point you're right you, you know you just you ride it until this thing slows down and in your defense it, it got you to a place where you did the 180 and, and you felt good about it, but you know, it just has not worked out for whatever reason since then with TCU. Don't know when that's going to turn around anytime soon with Sonny Dykes. Uh, but yeah, great conversation, man. Really appreciate the time. Uh, we'll do it again soon after paternity leave dad stuff, because you got one coming on the way uh, in, in a month here. So we'll do it again. Uh, probably once you're a little bit more settled in with dad life, man. <laughs> Looking forward to it. Thank you for having me. Lad of the week, I'm going to go with a guy that hmm, probably a lot of people are already sick of hearing about, but mm -hmm. I, I have a point. I have a point. Bronny James. Bronny James, okay. the, the son of LeBron. I am far from a LeBron fan. Okay? Just, I, I am not. I, I'm not the person that just everything he does is the greatest thing in the world. I am not that guy. But after the, the cardiac arrest that, that Bronny Went through over the summer. He made his college debut with USC over the weekend against Long Beach State. Looks like his dad on that chase down block. If you saw the highlights, if you're watching ESPN at any point in the last like three or four days, you've probably seen it. Um, mm -hmm. 
even though they lost, I still think he's worthy of that. Sold out crowd at USC. That is significant at a place like that. Dad was in the house, Mm -hmm. obviously. I do find myself, and maybe I'm in the minority with this, I find myself rooting for Bronny despite the fact that I actively root against his dad. Is that weird? Like, I grew up watching MJ's kids. and Marcus Jordan, UCF legend. Yeah, they both played at UCF. People forget that. Mm -hmm. Jeffrey Marcus played in the suburbs of Chicago. Marcus was a grade younger than me, and Jeffrey was my brother's age. And it always felt like while everybody assumed they were built for success, you could go to them playing a middle school game. And if dad showed up, there was not a game going on. It was Mm -hmm. an entire like C that would go to get an autograph from Michael Jeffrey Jordan. And it was like a scene that you're just like, how are you, how can you even be playing basketball right now? And everywhere those guys went, the amount of people that you're talking trash the whole time. And like, they, they wear that you, you went to these games knowing who those kids were. You, you just did. And yeah, they weren't like as good. I mean, Jeffrey was a preferred, he was a preferred walk on at Illinois, which like in today's day and age, that, that would not be the case. He would get a scholarship with NIL incentives galore, obviously right. be a little bit different, but I always just find myself being like, I, I kind of hope those those guys just figure it out and they find a way to to have success and enjoy their lives because wherever they go, it's just, it's just different than anybody else on the planet. So I, I don't know. I, I guess I feel that way about Bronny. And I think it's different like separating the coverage versus the, 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 the person itself. I used to always talk about that with Tebow. Like it's okay to be annoyed with the coverage of Tebow and who he was in the NFL and still think that, if there were a lot more Tim Tebow's in the world, the world would be a better place. That's the belief I've always had. Um, mm-hmm. kind of, and I'm not saying Bronny. I just compared Bronny James and Tim Tebow. Do not give us a one-star review for saying that. That's not what I'm saying. But I will say I find myself hoping that he has a, a good, successful career, regardless of whether or not he gets to play in the NBA with his dad, which would just be wildly cool. It would be. Even as a LeBron hater, I can say that would be wildly cool. Um just want that guy to have a good career and enjoy himself and nice to see him bounce back after, you know, probably a really scary situation for that family over the summer. You're touching on something that's super interesting that I've never thought of about Bradley James, which is I'm right there with you. I am just kind of a LeBron hater. And um, why do I hate LeBron? It's not because he's a criminal. It's not because he's like a cheater. It's not like he's done anything that's illegal or like that. Uh, he just kind of, beats everyone <laughs> just to be honest with you he doesn't really yeah. even have like allegations the flop, like the flopping and, yeah, and you know like sometimes he's just a little bit like you know he's trying to say that he's the first one to ever have a, a talk show right. in a barbershop like he just does stuff like that and you're just like dude what are we what are we doing? that's a bit okay so it's like that he's a little bit cheesy and corny right like that's yes. the whole thing is it's like a little bit of like what Mahomes is kind of starting to run into now where it's like okay you know how good you are you're aware of it um, I will, and like, I'm right there with you. Like I said, I've been a hater forever. I hated that he, you know, tampered with Anthony Davis and Rich Paul. I could do a whole th- thing on that and whatever. But point being, the cool thing about LeBron or the thing that I will give LeBron credit for is that, you know, he didn't really fall victim to 
okay, you know, he's still with his like high school sweetheart. He has not been a criminal. He has not let the, the, you know, stuff get in the way of the game. And I think that that in a way sets Brahmi up to even be harder, like his path to be harder because like, okay, it would be one thing if it was like, okay, you know, your dad was like, if you were one of Shaq's kids, like, oh, your dad couldn't shoot free throws. He was a little bit immature. So, you know, maybe I'm a little bit different, but LeBron has literally laid out the roadmap for, okay, like exactly what you just said, but that was him. Right. So when he was 16, 17 years old, Everybody was coming to his games. Everybody was looking at him. And he has managed that. And that's one thing I will always credit LeBron for, despite, you know, all this stuff. And, like, I'm getting harder and harder to be a Jordan over LeBron guy, but I still am just because I'm a hater. But it's, like, one thing I'll give him credit for is that he doesn't have the slip-ups. He, he has not, you know, let that stuff just turn him, like, into, a like, a legitimately bad person. And so with Bronny, it's like, okay, well, now you have to do everything that your dad did. And you're going to be compared with the most PR perfect basketball player ever in addition to this. Because, like, Michael obviously had his, like, shortcomings the gambling and stuff like that. And, like, you know, obviously if his kids were to have been successful, been like you, he could have just sold yourself as, like, wholesome Jordan. Um, and I, I think that actually that's that's a really good point, which is that, yeah, Bronny, you know, you could talk about being, you know, millionaire, billionaire and having all this like, genetics and, like, how he won the, the uh, you know, lottery in that way. But it's like, you know, it's not about his dad. It's about him, right? It's about his life. And he has to make his own path. And so to have this giant shadow cast over it by his dad, ultimately doing a lot of really cool things. Um, and, and him, obviously, with his health scare, it's like, you know, he's just like me for real. Like anyone, all of us are people that bleed and feel feelings. So, you know, this guy lived this quote unquote perfect life. But, you know, you just never know what can happen. So, yeah, honestly, praise out to the guy. And he has a long, just hopefully he has a long basketball career ahead of him. But he has a long road of making his own story ahead of him. Agreed. Yeah. Well, speak for yourself when it comes to the bleeding and being human um rock bowers mm, but he's not human yeah okay so we're just uh yeah we're just including humans all right fair enough yeah um <laughs> my lot of the week is completely off the board virginia wide receiver malik washington <laughs> so Stud. we've had a, we've had a lot of uh wide receiver discussion this week talking about our boy rome how do you say his name adunze Adunze, that one I should just know. That one's not that hard. Um, Marvin Harrison Jr., obviously. Malik Neighbors, even Brian Thomas, you could throw in there. Um, and I'm sitting here on Sports Reference, and I was just, you know, slandering Malik or slandering um, Marvin Harrison, as I often do. He's not even fourth on the top receiving leaders. And I'm looking at this guy, Malik Washington, and I'm like, what is this? Who is this guy? So if you look at Malik Neighbors, just objectively kind of leads everyone and everything, right? He's got 86 receptions, 1,500 yards, 14 touchdowns. This dude has 110 receptions. He has like a smooth, you know what I'm saying, like almost 30 more receptions than Malik Neighbors, who had better stats than Harrison. Only nine touchdowns, but this dude single-handedly carried the UVA offense. You guys have seen him in a couple of games this year. I believe he played Tennessee and Auburn this year. Um, or not Auburn. There was another game that was big that they almost won. Actually, I think it was Clemson they almost won. But we've watched some Virginia football. And point being, like, it's so crazy that like we're having this discussion about stats versus winning. And again, this is like a three and nine team, not saying that the team is special, but this is a five, nine dude who is in his fifth year of college and has just fully put a division one power five team on his back and has not been discussed as part of even the bullet. He was not a Bolitnikoff award finalist, Connor. And every statistic you could point to, he's better than Marvin Harrison Jr. And I understand like Marvin Harrison, more talented in bigger games, probably worse quarterback. But point being like, I think that like, it just goes like, to show that, Sometimes, you know, you just got to walk your path in life and sometimes the awards aren't going to come, but you got to just keep putting up your numbers. And I think that's super cool. Like I said, dude was at Northwestern for four years, obviously, you know, had that. He, I don't think he left because of the scandal, but he was there for it. And, you know, like he 
has been just a one-man offense for Virginia. And, like, we're having these discussions about Dunze, about um, Neighbors, about um, Marvin Harrison. It's like, yeah, but any of those things, if you're going quantifiable, this dude is right there with them. And like I say, he's 5'9". He's a speedy guy. I don't know what his NFL um, his NFL future is, but it's just cool to, like, shout guys out that are just balling in their space. It's like, yeah, like we talked about, Jaden can't play defense. Um, can't, you know, recruit a lineman or anything, but it's just, it's, it's super cool when you see these guys with these crazy gaudy numbers, especially a smaller guy where it's just like, you know, every week he is just taking a beating and like not getting heralded for it. So, and you have a ton of, a ton of great wide receivers. Let's not let that story go unnoticed. I think going from Northwestern and playing on that sky high grass and then playing literally anywhere else. I don't want to say you shave a full second off your 40 time. But I wouldn't bet against it. The The amount of speed you just pick up from going surface to surface, so significant. I, you're going to get popped for PEDs and be like, I, I swear, I didn't take any, any substance. They're like, well, you went from Northwestern's grass to turf. And that that is just cheating. And I should probably know whether or not Virginia plays on grass or turf. But regardless, nobody keeps it as high as Northwestern does on the pitch. So you know what? See, I okay. Place. There's some advice to Clark Lee. You got to go get every Northwestern guy you can, okay? Because they can get in mm. academically, and you're you're shaving time. Whatever athletes you see on that field, you take them to Nashville where there's nice climate. They're gonna ball out. You might get your own Malik Washington if you just raid Northwestern a little bit further. Duke, I don't, they're having a coaching change. Get out there, brother. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's that's tough. It's tough to leave those programs unless you're unless you're trying to get both of them on your resume. You know, you're trying to to set up your professional. You know, your your next step and it's not the NFL and you're like, oh, I'd love to have a degree from Duke and I'd love to have a degree from Vandy. And that's kind of a small, a small market to try and pick apart. But look, just just go out and get Ivy League, like the best player in the Ivy League and hope that it works out, uh, even though a lot of those kids don't exactly, you know, want to be saying like, oh, I have another year of eligibility left. Who knows? You just you just never know, man. There was uh mm-hmm. oh who was it? There was a there's a quarterback who just went to Minnesota. Why am I like uh Max Brosmer? Was that his name? Why am I blanking on his name? Sounds real. I think he was from New Hampshire. I don't know. Now I'm just thinking of the Northeast, and that's not really part of this discussion. But you're exactly right. Just go out and raid the raid the nerdy schools and hope for the best. Um, I said this last pod and bears repeating. We are doing something unique that we've never done before. With Saturday Down South, we're doing a betting the Bulls series. Okay, so Marler, myself, um, our guy from uh, who, who does our, our gam- a lot of our gambling content, Bob Wankel, um, that is part of our, our Saturday football um, or a part of our XL Media umbrella. We are all going to be giving gambling advice for betting on these bowl games that have so many different moving pieces. We're recording our first episode. By the time people are listening to this, we're recording our first episode on Tuesday. Plans to have four of these episodes. They're going to be bonus episodes. They're going to come out once a week during the bowl season. That's how we're going to try and preview these games. We're going to preview the New Year's Six Bowls that aren't part of the playoff. We're going to preview the playoff. We'll preview the national championship, all those different things. We're going to provide gambling advice. It's going to be available on our YouTube channel. We're going to put we're going to put even more production behind like a typical episode of what we do just from a visual standpoint as well. So the first one is scheduled to be dropping later this week. Again, no need to subscribe or do anything new. This is just, I'm, I'm just letting you know if you subscribe to this podcast, which you already should, or if you subscribe to Saturday Football Uncensored, like this is just going to show up. It's going to be in your inbox and be like, betting the Bulls, what's that? 
I'm telling you what it is right now. You're going to go back to this moment and you're like, oh yeah, Connor said exactly what it is. We are still going to have all of our normal episodes on top of that. So the schedule moving forward for us to record this usual Saturday Down South podcast, just like what we do in the off season, we record on Monday and Thursdays, episodes come out on Tuesday and Friday mornings. So that's how we're going to do this moving forward. We're going to try and stick to that throughout bowl season. Might have a couple of tweaks here and there. I meant to say something about that schedule last week, and I forgot. So if you're like listening to this on Tuesday, like, oh, I thought you guys were going to have an episode for me on Sunday afternoon or Monday. That is why my bad on that. Bonus content, though, you're getting it from us. Betting the bowls. It's going to be a lot of fun. A lot of great insight that we will provide on these bowl games that just are all over the place already. So uh, you're going to want to go subscribe and get content like this that'll make you a little bit of money in this holiday season. A little more, a little more Christmas cash. Nothing wrong with that. That's what I always say. If you have not, leave us a five-star review. Subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can watch every episode of the Saturday Down South podcast, which is presented by Texas Pete. Follow us on X at the SES Pod, at Set Down South, at CJ O'Gara, at Go So Hard. Thanks, guys. Talk soon.